Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. God is not willing to do everything. Therefore, the action of taking away one's free will, and the glory that goes along with it, is a glory reserved for us. Niccolò Machiavelli Once the representatives of the English and Spanish empires negotiated a peace treaty in Somerset House in London, which was finally signed on the 28th of August 1604, it signified that a ruinous 19-year war had come to an end. Though the war had fluctuated consistently throughout its tenure, the peace treaty granted both powers the chance to claim victory. For Philip III of Spain, the opening of the English Channel to Spanish merchants, the English promise not to interfere in the Netherlands, and the English oath to end the pillaging of Spanish colonial territories came as very welcome conditions. For James I of England, who was also James VI of Scotland, he could at least claim that England's status as a Protestant state had been officially recognised by Philip III, and that further wars launched against England for the sake of its Catholic minority would no longer occur. For the past two decades, England and Spain's war had dragged in just about every state in Europe, and had also spilled into the New World on numerous occasions. From the Netherlands, to France, to Ireland, war had ravaged the treasuries and transformed the nature of both kingdoms to the extent that Europe itself appeared different on the other side. James I wished to concentrate on balancing his union of the English and Scottish crowns while also ensuring that his defeat of Ireland continued to run smoothly. Philip III, meanwhile, after inheriting a relatively broke and exhausted kingdom in 1598 from his father Philip II, wished to focus on other matters too. France under Henry IV was a concern, as it began to recover and no longer roll over under Spanish pressure, and his advisers assured him that the French king also had his eyes on Spain's Italian possessions too. War with the Netherlands needed to be successfully concluded for the sake of Spain's additional financial recovery in Europe and across the Atlantic. And Spain's Habsburg ally in the Holy Roman Empire was beginning to show dangerous signs of polarising along religious lines. 
something which Philip's advisors further assured him he had to be ready for. Additionally for Philip was the question of the Ottomans and the threat they still posed to Europe and the Mediterranean. While it also remained necessary to keep a watchful eye on the Spanish road that linked Spain's Italian, mid-European and Low Countries possessions. In short, both James I and Philip III had a lot on their respective plates in 1604, and the decision of both to make peace and turn their attention elsewhere, while understandable at the time, appears in retrospect as the ending of one European era and the beginning of another one. King of France and at peace with Spain focused his efforts at increasing the standing of France and improving its domestic, particularly its religious, situation. After publicly declaring for Catholicism, much to the joy of the Catholic majority in France, Henry knew that his former allies in the Protestant Huguenots would have to be contended with. After his switching sides though, the Huguenots had felt betrayed enough to further encroach themselves within their strongholds throughout the east and south of the country in the fear that Henry planned to attack and remove them as a third pillar threat to his reign. But Henry had proven before that this was not his intentions. He had passed the Edict of Nantes in 1598, the same year as making peace with Spain, which also promised religious toleration to Protestants along limited lines, while still granting Catholicism pride of place in France. Henry would have to keep one eye open on the Huguenot threat to his power, but for the moment he focused his attention on Spain, notably its three-tier surrounding of his country in the south, along the Franco-Spanish border, in the east, in the region of Franche-Comte, and in the north, in the Spanish Netherlands. Within these territories ran a crucial route, connecting Spain's European possessions to Italy, and its Holy Roman dynastic interests too. A heavily used route from north to south nicknamed the Spanish Road. Geoffrey Parker, in his book will come across repeatedly in the rest of this special, called Europe in Crisis, 1598-1648, examines the importance of the road in relation to Henry's post-war relations with Spain. Quote, Even after peace returned in 1598, Henry IV spent about half his revenues on defence. He paid particular attention to safeguarding the northern and eastern frontiers, either rebuilding or upgrading the fortifications of almost 50 different towns, and surveying and mapping all border regions that he considered vulnerable. Henry's concern is easy to understand. Spain normally maintained a standing army of 5,000 men in Lombardy, and 50,000 men more in the South Netherlands. Men, money and munitions could move swiftly from Milan to Brussels, and back, along a military corridor known to contemporaries as the Spanish Road. Clearly, should a new war break out with Spain, the safety of France depended on breaching this chain of communication. End quote. Henry was already thinking about the possibility of war only months after achieving the peace, and as Parker pointed out there, it's hard to blame him. Knowing full well that England no longer supported Spain, at least not on an official level, and recognising also that the Dutch faced them alone, Henry saw the dangers of Habsburg encirclement everywhere, and would have looked for any opportunity to decrease the Habsburg hegemony in Europe, lest he feared that he would be next. 
delving into the complexities of German politics remained an unappealing prospect for Henry. So he turned instead to his former ally during the previous years of war with Spain, the Dutch Republic. Geoffrey Parker explains the support given by France to the Dutch in the name of the French strategic interest. Quote, The Dutch in particular received generous assistance. Over 12 million livres, 1.2 million pounds, between 1598 and 1610. Between 1605 and 1607, when the Dutch faced the might of Spain alone, the subsidies rose to almost 2 million livres a year, which represented 10% of France's total budget. Generally, Henry strove to pacify confessional quarrels abroad for fear that one of them might start a new religious war in France. End quote. Henry did not have to wait long to be drawn into a further intrigue with neighbouring states other than Spain. Conveniently for Henry, this intrigue involved him in a region in Europe where he had long hoped to expand French influence, Italy. Henry's first chance to cut the Spanish road came early, when in early 1600 a tiny, semi-autonomous city-state named Saluzzo began to be the new hot topic among Franco-Spanish diplomats. In 1588, the microstate had been invaded and seized by the Duke of Savoy, Charles Emmanuel I, while France remained internally divided and externally distracted. But by 1598, Henry was asking nicely for it back, and Charles Emmanuel did not want, under any circumstances, to grant France a place with which it could garrison its soldiers within Savoy, which is exactly what Charles Emmanuel feared Saluzzo would become for Henry. Savoy had endured years of French occupation at the beginning of the 16th century, and the memory and tales of this era carried down to Charles Emmanuel by his father, Emmanuel Philibert, who participated in regaining Savoyard sovereignty with the peace of Cato Cambrissi between Spain and France in 1559, led him instead to seek Spanish help. But Philip III's help was only an option for Charles Emmanuel because Phil had gotten word that Charles was becoming tempted by a French offer to keep Saluzzo if France could in return take Bress. Why was Philip of Spain concerned that France may hold Bress, this small territory in the far west of Charles Emmanuel's domains? For the same reason, Henry asked for the trade in the first place. Both recognised that if France held Bress, it would mean that France would be in a position to block the Spanish road if it so wished. When Philip began to whisper in Charles Emmanuel's ear that he did not need to compromise with Henry, and that Spain would militarily support Savoy in its pledge to gain more ground, Charles leapt at the chance. But Henry had moved first, as Geoffrey Parker explains. Quote, Anticipating trouble, Henry IV had already moved to Lyon and mobilised an army. He now declared war on Savoy and launched an invasion of 50,000 troops. Within a week, his men had reached the Alpine passes before a single Spanish soldier could cross to help the Duke. Henry nevertheless agreed to accept papal arbitration of the dispute. At the Peace of Lyon, January 1601, France ceded Saluzzo to Savoy, but gained all Savoyard territory west of Rhone, except for one narrow valley that allowed Spanish troops and treasure to cross from Lombardy to the new countries without touching French soil. But only just. The Spanish road now depended on a single bridge across the Rhone, which the French could and did break whenever they desired to prevent reinforcements reaching the Low Countries. Quote. Because of the aid he was pouring into the Dutch Republic, 
Henry had every reason to make this now seriously restricted route as unreliable and as broken up as possible for the Spanish once they passed by his area of control. By simply destroying a bridge, Henry could in fact cause a series of chain reactions that would leave Spain's forces simply unable to reach areas of importance, such as the Dutch Republic, in time. For the next few years, Henry's policies of international affairs became tempered by advisors from his predecessor Henry III, nicknamed the Greybeards, who also attempted to negotiate compromises between Protestant and Catholic forces within France, and also tried their hand at diplomacy with the rest of Europe as reps from Venetian papal conflicts and the Spanish and Dutch wars would be brought together and encouraged to make peace. Their efforts rarely succeeded in the latter's case, but combined with the Edict of Nantes and the decline in Huguenot power, the Catholic-Protestant conflict in France appeared to have been resolved. However, news began to filter into Henry's court that yet another succession crisis was on the cards, this one due to occur at the death of the airless John William. Duke of Cleve, Eulich and Berg, Count of Mark and Ravensburg, in March 1609. John William's lands encompassed pretty much the land to the immediate east of the Dutch Republic, and thus all three, France, Spain and the Netherlands, immediately became anxious to see a successful resolution of the crisis. The crisis also drew the attention of Rudolf II, Holy Roman Emperor at the time, because he was their feudal overlord, since the lands fell under the sway of the Holy Roman Empire. In this case, John Sigismund, the Elector of Brandenburg, and the Count of Newburg, Wolfgang William, both laid claim to the territories. Because both were Lutherans, and thus did not see the issue as a religious one, it was agreed after some prodding by other princes to put the issue up to mediation. It was at this moment that Rudolf II resolved his domestic issues though, and Geoffrey Parker describes the bizarre turn of events that happened next. Quote, then, however, Rudolf appointed his cousin, Bishop Leopold of Passau, as his commissioner, and on the 23rd of July 1609, after travelling incognito across Germany, Leopold took possession of the well-fortified citadel and city of Eulich in the Emperor's name. End quote. Suddenly, Rather than a nice little interprince state grab, the situation at Eulich Cleves became a full-blown international event, as it appeared as though the Habsburgs were trying to muscle in on territory in a strategically important position in relation to their European goals. It was eventually agreed that the lands should be ruled jointly by the two princes, an idea put forward by the German Principality of Hesse. But the five cities of Cleves, Mark, Eulich, Berg and Ravensburg argued that they wished to be ruled by a single prince, and thus in the Treaty of Xanten on November 12th, 1614, yes it did take everyone about five years to agree to the terms, it was decided that the five cities and their lands be separated between the two claimants. What happened in the years in between late 1609 and late 1614 centred around the divisions now present within the empire along religious lines. On one side you had the Protestant or Evangelical Union, and on the other side you had the Catholic League, a different league from the Catholic League we saw in France in the years before, but it still professed the same ideas. Geoffrey Parker examines the rapid escalation of the events surrounding what would become known as the War of the Eulich Succession. Quote, For his part, Henry told a Habsburg agent at his court as soon as he heard the news, For reasons of state, he could not, nor ought not, to suffer the House of Austria to extend its dominions over the duchies. 
and he threatened to lead an army into Germany in order to uphold the rights of the claimants. The claimants, however, declined this offer, since each hoped to gain the entire inheritance and feared that outside pressure might force a partition. The situation remained volatile until November 1609, when Rudolf ordered the claimants to surrender what they held within six weeks or be declared outlaws. To parry this threat, the Evangelical Union resolved to raise an army, under the command of Christian of Anhalt, to drive Leopold out of Eulich. Anhalt, for his part, secured Henry's promise to contribute matching forces to the venture. Shortly afterwards, the Dutch Republic and King James I of Great Britain also promised military aid, so that by March 1610, the claimants could expect 30,000 soldiers to help them. End quote. After the events at the imperial free city of Donauwörth, the Protestant inhabitants of the Holy Roman Empire simply did not trust Rudolf's ability to be impartial, and thus began to develop defensive plans of their own to protect and acquire the duchies by force if necessary. An English diplomat at the time, Sir Ralph Winwood, also said of Henry IV of France at the time, who the Habsburgs had to watch suspiciously in addition to elements within their own lands, as to his intentions in Eulich and what, if any, his ulterior motives may have been. What his design is, in an enterprise of so great charge, trouble and danger, and, for aught yet is seen, to so small a purpose, our wisest men in the parts do lose themselves in the discourse. Why bring an army of 30,000 men, attended with 50 pieces of cannon, before such a poor miserable place as Eulich, and against a contemptible enemy as Leopold, who, if the report be true, is already fled, for certainly he will not abide the hazard of a siege. Henry IV would in fact be assassinated before his true intentions as to Eulich and its surrounding lands could be revealed, and his death and successor are topics we'll cover in the next episode. Importantly for France, though, its obligations were fulfilled, and a joint English-Dutch-French force ensured Eulich would not be held hostage by Leopold any longer. And the later Treaty of Xanten, though it did technically send everyone home happy, also split the duchies too, which, if you'll remember, was a result neither claimant had originally wanted. Of the most significance, though, is just how close the HRE came to full-blown religious conflict once one of the claimants, Wolfgang William of Newburgh, converted to Catholicism in 1613. With the two claimants now on different religious sides of the fence, the two armed camps in the Evangelical Union and the Catholic League began to mobilise, and Emperor Matthias, who we'll encounter later, was forced into a compromise once he saw the writing on the wall. This time, a terrible religious war that would split the empire in half was averted but in 1618, Europe would not be so lucky. The time has now come to backtrack a little bit and explain the worsening domestic situation in the Empire, as well as how the two elements in the Catholic League and the Evangelical Union came to be. As far as compromises go, the 1555 Peace of Augsburg is up there with the best of them. Solving directly none of the religious problems that had so divided the Holy Roman Empire, 
but still promising to apparently end the religious conflict that had been ongoing since the printing of Luther's thesis. 1555, at the very least, saved the empire from the kind of ruinous conflict that consumed France in the latter half of the 16th century. In short, it promised a measure of equality for Lutherans and Catholics living in the empire, and promised that the leaders or electors of their states would choose the religion, be it Lutheran or Catholic, of that state. Maurus of Saxony and his Protestant allies had been a crucial factor in influencing the ailing Charles V to recognise the divide between his lands. Though Charles refused to recognise the divide as permanent, the recent years before had shown that the time had come to legalise and legitimise the differences between the two fates, which up until then had boiled and chafed under an empire that seemed altogether unwilling to recognise the existence of one or the troubles of the other. Maurice of Saxony was an interesting chap. As a Protestant, one would have expected him to try and prevent the clampdown on Protestantism that Charles V underwent in the latter years of his reign. But in 1547, Mars aided Charles's forces, enforcing the eminent Protestant elector, John Frederick of Saxony, to cede his lands and title to Mars, and thus Mars gained a reputation for betraying his Protestant faith. Probably tired of being jeered in the street, and seeing that Charles V was in fact intending to stamp out as much Protestantism as possible across what were now technically Mars's lands, Morris waited until his ceremony, where he would be crowned Elector of Saxony, to announce that his position had changed. Meanwhile, Charles V had attempted to implement the Augsburg Interim, which had sought to reintegrate Lutherans back into Catholicism by forcing them to compromise on certain issues. It may have succeeded, if not for the vociferous opposition from Catholic and Lutheran alike. Morris became further disenchanted with Charles's plans and he soon began forming alliances with Protestant princes of the empire and with France, and in 1552 he signed the Treaty of Chambord with Henry II of France, which handed over some cities to Henry in exchange for the promise of aid against Charles V. Protestants within the north of the empire began to gain ground over the following years, and forced themselves into the southern lands of the empire, even into Austria itself. Charles V fled further south, and his brother Ferdinand negotiated on his behalf later that year, signing the Peace of Passau and establishing the Lutheran faith in its full and separate status as a legal and different religious denomination of Christianity within the Empire. This was finalised in the Peace of Augsburg two years later, in 1555. Richard Bonney, in his book The Thirty Years' War, 1618-1648, notes on the impact of the Peace of Augsburg for Germany. Quote, the Peace of Augsburg, signed in September 1555, affected political and religious affairs in the Empire for many years, and was at the heart of the issues involved in the Thirty Years' War. Hastily concluded by Ferdinand I, brother of Charles V, who abdicated a year later, in negotiation with the Lutheran princes led by Mars of Saxony, the settlement was not intended as a peace of eternal duration, as it came to be regarded by the Lutherans. Though it guaranteed the peace at first, each side interpreted it differently, which in the long term paralysed the German constitution. In particular, the peace guaranteed the position of the Lutherans, but not the Calvinists. The spread of Calvinism, and the further spread of Lutheranism after 1555, further undermined the basis of the peace, for the Catholic princes were determined to oppose such gains. 
end quote. The years in between 1555 and 1608 had seen all but the kind of outright religious conflict seen in France occur within the empire. It became more and more an issue of the religious balance of power, and frequent interference by Spain in German affairs in the interests of Catholicism further added to the sense of unease. In the Cologne War, for example, which was fought from 1583 to 1588, a dangerous precedent for international involvement in German affairs was established when, in December 1582, Gevard Trotjes von Waldberg, the Prince Elector of Cologne, converted to Protestantism. Ordinarily, such a conversion would not have ruffled the feathers of the Habsburgs so much, but Cologne was subject to the principle of reservatum ecclesiasticum, which had been present in the Peace of Augsburg, and which had been inserted as a counterweight to the traditional course of action that would have occurred under such circumstances, known as whose realm his religion, meaning whatever the leader of that state's religion is, the religion of the entire state would be the same. The Habsburgs had been fearful of the consequences of such a clause, and so inserted one of their own to counterbalance it. Thus, in certain territories within the empire, basically the ones that some form of elector resided in, podcast footnote, the seven major electors of the Holy Roman Empire consisted of three ecclesiastic and four secular electors. The three ecclesiastic or religious offices were the archbishoprics of Mainz, Trier, and, crucially in this case, Cologne. The four secular offices were the King of Bohemia, the Margrave of Brandenburg, the Duke of Saxony, and the Count Palatine of the Rhine. Of these four, the last will play the most crucial part in the Thirty Years' War to come, and bring the entire electoral process change for the first time in 400 years in the process. End podcast footnote. It was decreed that should a ruler convert to Protestantism in these lands, he must resign his lands, title, and inheritance to a Catholic ruler. Obviously, this would have caused controversy, but it's likely that Protestant rulers did not take it at face value, believing that it was intended to simply assure Catholic subjects of the empire that they would not be forced converted should their ruler change his religious affiliations. But von Waldberg was mindful of the possibility of an angry Catholic populace, and he assured his subjects that they all had religious freedom under his lands. An honourable declaration, had it not been made illegal under the Peace of Augsburg. What concerned the Habsburgs was the potential that the Elector of Cologne had to upset the thoroughly Catholic-dominated balance of power within the electoral states of the Empire. Should this balance of power be upset, the potential down the road was that a Protestant emperor may one day sit on the throne. Of course, such a prospect was virtually impossible, considering the monopoly on power that the Catholic Habsburgs enjoyed. But still, the threat appeared legit enough to prompt the Habsburgs into action. What began as a local struggle within the Cologne electorate evolved into a full-blown Protestant versus Catholic affair with the Dutch Republic and Protestant German princes supporting von Waldberg and Spain, the Habsburgs and Catholic German princes supporting Ernst of Bavaria, who was the brother of William V, Duke of Bavaria. With considerable help from the Duke of Parma, the lands of the Cologne electorate were seized in the name of Ernst of Bavaria, while von Waldberg was expelled. When the conflict ended in 1588, Spain had gained additional inroads and influence into Catholic German lands. The Dutch Republic was further surrounded, 
The Habsburgs did resolve their issues within the Cologne War just in time to turn east, however, in order to give their attention to another serious issue, this time outside their borders, in the Ottoman Empire. Sultan Murad III had a problem. As ruler of the Ottoman Empire, his forces commanded fear and respect throughout Christian Europe as well as the Far East. But in 1590, he renewed a peace treaty with the Holy Roman Empire that stated that peace would continue between the two empires in exchange for an annual subsidy from Rudolf II, the Holy Roman Emperor. The annual tribute is the clearest of all signs from the era of the level of power that the Ottomans commanded. Having reached as far as the Balkans, and within a few days marching distance of Vienna, it seemed as though the only solution open to Christian Europe anymore was to simply swallow one's pride and pay for peace with the Turks, in the hope that down the line, sometime, a better deal or more favourable situation would come about. Sultan Murad III must have been happy at this grim conclusion that had been forced upon Rudolf II and his advisers even while the loss at Lepanto had been meant to signify the end of Ottoman power in the Mediterranean, no such end had come. But Sultan Murad III had a problem. Having finally wrapped up an exhaustive war in the east against Iran, and having acquired much booty and prestige in that region in the process, Murad's advisers were now informing him that now was the best time to strike at the Habsburgs. Because now, having become entangled in some messy domestic situation of their own, a short, sharp war could reap serious benefits for the Ottoman state. With lands that stretched into Hungary, the Habsburgs maintained a series of fortifications along the border with the Ottomans that had been established in the early and mid-16th century to ensure the reach of the Ottomans did not advance any further into southeastern Europe. Geoffrey Parker in his book Europe in Crisis 1598-1648 notes on the international changes that precipitated the Ottoman attack, as well as the defensive arrangements of the Habsburgs. Quote, in 1590, in return for an annual subsidy from Rudolf II, Holy Roman Emperor and King of Hungary, the Sultan renewed the treaty that had maintained a formal peace in the Balkans for 22 years. That same year, however, the Turks ended a long-running war with Iran, their eastern neighbour, bringing them booty, prestige and rich new lands in the Caucasus. Many of the Sultan's advisers now favoured immediate deployment of their victorious forces westwards, and, although Rudolf II began to pay personal pensions to certain important ministers in Istanbul to preserve the peace, the resumption of war in Hungary began to seem inevitable. The Balkan border between the two empires ran from the Adriatic to the Tatra Mountains, crossing the Great Hungarian Plain and all the major rivers that flow through it. Although between 1521 and 1566 the Turks had broken through the fortifications that protected Hungary's southeastern border, Italian military architects gradually created a new defensive system anchored on artillery fortresses. By the 1590s the frontier floated around these heavily fortified strongholds, surrounded by settlements of refugees. 
This defensive penumbra provided both a buffer zone against small attacks and an early warning system against larger ones. End quote. Under orders from the Sultan, in 1591 the Turkish governor of Bosnia launched an expedition that captured a number of Christian outposts in Croatia. A Habsburg counterattack the following year was unsuccessful, but then in 1593 the Habsburgs were able to surprise and massacre a Turk army under the command of the same governor of Bosnia who had began the campaigning in 1591. Enraged, the Sultan now sent his core army to Belgrade to initiate a campaign of reprisal against the Habsburgs. When the Turks captured the fortress of Gajor, a hundred kilometres from Vienna, Rudolf appealed for allies, as Parker notes. Rudolf looked desperately for allies. In the West, his envoys secured money and military assistance from Spain, the papacy and several princes. In the East, he forged an alliance with the rulers of two quasi-autonomous Balkan states. Transylvania and Wallachia. Both had long since recognised Turkish suzerainty, paid tribute to the Turkish treasury, and helped defeat and equip the Sultan's forces in the Balkans. The campaigns of the Ottoman army in Hungary greatly increased these burdens, and in October 1594, Prince Michael the Brave of Wallachia arrested and killed the Sultan's financial officials and captured his forts along the Danube. Prince Sigismund Battery of Transylvania signed an alliance with Rudolf in 1595. These developments prevented the Turks from supplying their main army in Hungary, allowing the Habsburgs to capture the important fortress of Gran in 1595. At the same time, Michael raided south of the Danube, sacked Plevna, and came within five days' journey of Istanbul, while a Polish force expelled the Tartars, who had occupied a third semi-independent Balkan principality, Moldavia. End quote. In the face of such unified Christian opposition, the new Sultan, Mehmed II, appeared to face a tough challenge to assume control of the area. However, as was the case in the past, internal squabbling soon drove a wedge between the Christian states that had so effectively combated the Ottoman threat to the region. Michael the Brave of Wallachia spoke and wrote Greek, and began to pose as a champion of Greek orthodoxy and ideas of Balkan independence in order to give his campaign more weight. It had the opposite effect though, because neither Rudolf of the Habsburgs nor the Poles wished to see the Balkans as anything but subsidiaries to their own empires, and thus the Polish Chancellor, Jan Zamoyski, signed a partition treaty with the Ottomans in October 1595 whereby Wallachia and Moldavia would be partitioned amongst the two empires. With his flank now secured in the east, the Sultan put a daring plan in motion. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com to strike right into the heart of Hungary, with an army he would lead in person. Geoffrey Parker explains the significance of such an act by the Sultan, and examines the level of planning and logistics required of such an enterprise. Quote, the magnitude of this undertaking must not be forgotten. It took between two and three months for a large army to travel the 1,000 kilometres along a special military road for near Istanbul to Belgrade gateway to the Great Hungarian Plain, at an average of 13 kilometres a day. Beyond Belgrade, however, where Tartar cavalry and troops from the Balkan provinces of the Empire normally joined the levies from Anatolia and the Arab lands, special military routes had to be laid out and pontoon bridges assembled for each campaign. The army travelled with great herds of sheep and cattle to supply meat and horses en route, while oxen, buffalo, camels, mules and draft horses pulled guns, supplies and baggage wagons. Government-sponsored rice cultivation along the major rivers of the Balkans provided the troops with their preferred staple food on the march. Thanks to these measures, in 1596 Mehmed assembled an army of perhaps 100,000 men in Hungary and captured the stronghold of Irlau, cutting communications between Austria and Transylvania. End quote. The Ottoman success is especially notable when one considers the logistic plans Mehmed accounted for. Unlike later scenes that so characterised the Thirty Years' War, Mehmed had brought what he needed with him, and, where there was a plan to live off the land, in this case it involved drawing upon the rice crop planted by his vassals the previous years, not the widespread pillaging of the countryside in search for food. Remember the provisions Mehmed makes here, folks, because after 1618, he'll seem like the smartest guy ever in comparison to the attack them, then look for food tactics of the European states that would cause untold damage on Germany and its surrounding areas. It is far more likely, though, that Rudolf was thinking less about food in late 1596, and more about how to get this giant Ottoman army off his Hungarian lands. Hungary had remained an inherited territory of the Habsburgs since the Habsburg marriage to the last king of Hungary's brother, Louis II. Once Louis died at the disastrous Battle of the Mohawks in 1526, the throne passed to Charles V. But Charles could not claim to have realistic control over all of Hungary, since a third of it was claimed by the Ottomans, while another third was claimed by the Ottoman vassal of Transylvania. Thus, a kind of three-way dance emerged and whenever the Ottomans wished to really ruffle the feathers of the Habsburgs, they usually invaded Hungary to do so. It also explains the strategic importance of Transylvania, because without its cooperation, the Habsburgs face strong combined opposition, 
while on the other hand, the combined help of Transylvania and Wallachia, the latter would compose part of Romania, tipped the balance in favour of the Habsburgs, most of the time. The cooperation of Michael the Brave's Wallachia and Sigismund's Transylvania was thus especially important to Rudolf II, because without their help it would be seriously difficult to pressure the huge Ottoman army to leave. Rudolf sent a large force to face the Ottomans in a pitched battle, and the Ottomans had actually lost the day until the Christian forces began raiding the Ottoman camp, and the royal guard of the Ottomans were rallied for a final charge even while the Sultan himself had fled the battlefield. The force sent by Rudolf had been meant to relieve the fortress of Erlau and re-establish communications between Transylvania and the Habsburgs, but the loss in this case sufficiently intimidated Michael the Brave enough to make peace with the Ottomans, as Mehmed saw his forces regain control over the Danube. Then, the Sultan's advisers made a critical mistake, and took a roll call after their narrow victory against the aforementioned Habsburg army in October 1596 and decided to condemn all absentee vassals as traitors to the Ottoman state. This had the immediate effect of removing the lands of those who fought for the Sultan from their inheritance, and this now considerable force of rebels, who had come to be known as the Kalali, fled to the heartland of the Ottoman Empire in Anatolia, and formed bandit gangs where they began to tear apart the countryside and cost the Sultan a fortune. Originally, the advice to condemn those absent had been meant as a quick fix to pay off his allies with new lands, but it had the actual effect of creating an atmosphere of terror in what was meant to be the safest part of the Ottoman state, and the plundering antics of the Kalali would plague the empire for many years to come. Perhaps even more dangerously, some of those who had been denounced as traitors to the Ottoman state cut their losses and signed up with the Shah of Iran who was anxious to rectify his losses from the previous campaign. Geoffrey Parker explains the complicated series of alliances and counter-alliances that sprang up in the Balkans as a reaction to the Ottoman situation. Quote, the need to restore order in the empire prevented the effective exploitation of the Ottoman victory at Erlo. Instead, in an attempt to take advantage of Ottoman disunity, in June 1598, Michael the Brave signed an alliance with Rudolf and again sent raiding parties south of the Danube. Early in 1599, however, Andreas Bathory, a cardinal of the Roman Church based in Poland, succeeded his cousin Sigismund as Prince of Transylvania and immediately overthrew his alliance with Rudolf and Michael in favour of a rapprochement with Poland. End quote. However, Michael the Brave of Wallachia acted quickly in this case, as Parker notes. Quote, Michael promptly concluded a new peace with the Sultan and invaded Transylvania. He defeated Andreas and in November 1599 declared himself prince. The following spring, Michael also invaded Moldavia, where the Polish and Hungarian supporters of Andreas Bathory had taken refuge, and in June 1600, the Moldavian towns recognised him as their ruler. He now controlled all three principalities. End quote. Michael the Brave, once just the ruler of Wallachia, had gone from a petty vassal ruler to leader of three former vassals in a seriously strategically important part of the world. For his neighbours, though, it was a case of too much too fast, and Michael was suddenly the guy in everyone's hit list. 
the Poles invaded Moldavia and reincorporated it into their empire later that year, while Habsburg forces invaded Transylvania. As if that wasn't enough to play into the Sultan's hands, the Poles then turned on their temporary ally in the Habsburgs and invaded Transylvania too, forcing Michael the Brave and Rudolf into another alliance against their respective wills. Critically for Michael though, he wrote to the Sultan, promising concessions in return for help in the region against the Poles. The Ottomans, bemused by Michael's apparent amnesia, did nothing. But Habsburg agents did intercept one of these correspondences, and had Michael the Brave arrested. In August 1601 he was brought before an imperial court and sentenced to death. Perhaps a bit rash, because over the next 18 months, and without a Michael the Brave to stop them, Ottoman forces recaptured all their losses from the previous years and then some, getting full control over Wallachia, Moldavia, and Transylvania, control which they would hold until the mid-19th century. The Ottomans then retreated back across their borders, and would sue for peace in 1606 due to troubling circumstances at home. As Geoffrey Parker explains, quote, Three developments prevented the Turks from exploiting their advantages further. First, the Kalali devastated Anatolia, the empire's principal reservoir of taxes and troops, and defied the large armies sent against them by the Sultan, causing rioting in the capital. Second, in 1603 Iran declared war and began the reconquest of the lost Caucasian provinces. Third, at the end of that year, Mehmed II died, and a power struggle for control over his young heir ensued. Positional warfare now dominated the Habsburg-Turkish struggle, with each campaign revolving around the siege of a single fortress. End quote. The Peace of Zivatarok on November 11, 1606, ended what has become known as the Long War between the Ottomans and the Habsburgs. It was signed by Habsburg reps in what coincided with a flurry of diplomatic activity in Hungary too, as the ruler of Transylvania, Stephen Boxay, was granted sovereignty over his lands and would henceforth be able to select his own heirs to rule that territory. In Royal Hungary, which was owned and ruled by the Habsburgs, and in the part of Hungary ruled by the Ottomans, tensions along the borders fluctuated. But the Peace of Zitvatorok did establish peace between the Habsburgs and the Ottomans for the next 20 years, at least according to the terms. The language of the treaty is still a subject for debate among historians, with the issues of tribute to be paid by the Holy Roman Empire, and the comparisons drawn between the Ottoman Sultan and the Emperor of particular significance. The former because annual tribute to the Ottomans from the Habsburgs ended after this treaty was signed and the latter because for the first time the treaty appeared to consider both rulers as spiritual, political, and authoritative equals. Thus, as some have argued, it could be seen as the moment when the Ottoman Empire was at its highest point, but just about to cross over the knife edge into its long decline. If Rudolf had had his way, the Habsburgs may never have made peace with the Ottomans. During this time it appears as though Rudolf's mind was breaking down, and that in this state he seemed incapable of making responsible and appropriate decisions, including the making of peace. Thus, though Rudolf greatly resented him for it, he came to rely on his brother Matthias, who was next in line for the imperial throne to carry out the kind of tasks that were actually required of Rudolf. This relationship is examined by our friend Geoffrey Parker. Quote, 
In the early 17th century, the Habsburg lands, with some 8 million subjects, boasted four separate courts. Emperor Rudolf II, based in Prague, ruled Bohemia and its allied lands of Moravia, Lusatia, and northwest Hungary. His brother Matthias ruled Lower Austria, capital Vienna, and Upper Austria, capital Linz, while another brother, Maximilian, governed further Austria and its swaying appendages, capital Innsbruck. Finally, from Graz, their cousin Ferdinand ruled Inner Austria. Relations between the four courts were strained. Although on the surface, all the archdukes recognised Rudolf's seniority, I humbly and completely bow myself before your majesty's gracious and sovereign will to deal with me as may be pleasing, one of them once grovelled. In practice, they frequently disregarded or disobeyed him, especially after 1600 when the emperor spent more and more time in seclusion. The Spanish ambassador did not see Rudolf for over a year, and brief episodes of diligence alternated with long periods of inaction. As the war in Hungary dragged on, frustration with Rudolf mounted, led by his brother, and heir presumptive, Matthias. End quote. The war with Hungary did demonstrate Rudolf's inability to make rational decisions, but by all accounts, Rudolf did seem to have been a tolerant, pragmatic ruler who attempted to balance the favour of Protestants and Catholics so as to reduce religious tensions, at least in the beginning. But he could not stop the Protestant Union and the Catholic League from forming, nor could he unify them in a war against the Turks, as he had hoped to do. Instead, when the Holy Roman Empire emerged from the war with the Ottomans in 1606, their empire was split down religious lines and appeared ready for a showdown, while Hungary's inhabitants were so exhausted that they revolted under Stephen Boxay, as we saw before. Over the next few years until his death in 1612, Rudolf would be forced to cede more titles and crowns to his family members, particularly Matthias, as a domestic situation got out of control within his empire. As we'll soon see, though, the escalating religious situation was not all Rudolf's fault. The Holy Roman Empire was a highly complicated, some might say unnatural animal. Within its borders lived some 20 million people, and the population rose fast in the years leading up to the Thirty Years' War, thanks to favourable economic conditions, the reclamation of land and the recolonisation of old villages and land that had previously only housed forest. Agriculture and industry expanded, as did commercial enterprise. Trade by land and water increased. So did the production of minerals, textiles and metalwork. Public banks would open their doors for the first time in Hamburg and Nuremberg in 1621. Granted, certain crises did occur in the smaller indebted states throughout the 1590s. But overall, an atmosphere of calm and stable prosperity radiated out of the HRE at the beginning of the 17th century. This prosperity is all the more interesting when one considers that the political and religious affairs of the empire were tearing it apart at the seams. Interestingly, it is in fact possible to blame the Ottoman Empire and their rampage into the Balkans in the early 16th century for the divisions present within the HRE. If not for the Ottomans, perhaps the HRE would have been able to deal with the onset of religious divisions following the Reformation, or perhaps even been able to stamp out the different denominations before they properly emerged in their latter force. Geoffrey Parker echoes this view, quote, From the 1520s onwards, 
the Empire's Lutherans had exploited every Ottoman advance up the Danube Valley to secure guarantees of religious toleration in return for their military and financial support. As one Catholic preacher grimly observed, The Turkish threat is a blessing to the Lutherans, but for that we would be able to deal with them in a very different way. The number of Lutheran states increased, add to the number of Lutheran subjects in many Catholic states. For example, by 1590, perhaps 90% of the population of Habsburg, Austria and Bohemia had defected from Roman Catholicism. The Calvinists, although they failed to secure official toleration, also gained some ground. All of this produced chaos. The Swabian Circle in South Germany, for example, consisted of 68 secular lords, 40 bishops and abbots, and 32 imperial free cities and by 1600 almost half its members and almost exactly half its population were Protestant, both Lutheran and Calvinist, and the rest Catholic. They could no longer agree on state policy. End quote. By 1600, most German Catholic rulers were actually attempting to reduce Protestant influence by using the majority they possessed collectively in the Holy Roman Empire's Supreme Court. In response to this, the Protestants refused to acknowledge the legitimacy of the decisions made by the Supreme Court in ecclesiastical disputes, and in 1602 they demanded equal representation with Catholics in both the Supreme Court and the Diet, or Parliament, of the HRE. The Catholics refused. For many Protestants, it was Rudolf's handling of the crisis that unfolded in the imperial free city of Donauwörth that resembled perfectly how religiously biased the Habsburgs were and thus that they could not rely on their judgement or protection. In Donauwörth in 1607, the city's Catholic minority complained to Rudolf that the city's Protestants were harassing them and preventing them from carrying out their religious rites and rituals. A serious accusation, since Donauwörth was supposed to be a free city, where all could enjoy equal rights to religious worship and freedoms. Rudolf's response to the Catholic claims were both provocative and swift he appointed the Catholic Duke Maximilian of Bavaria as the imperial commissioner charged with protecting the rights of the oppressed Catholic minority, and in December 1607, Max marched into the city and occupied it. Not only was this against the laws of the HRE, since, as a free city, Donauwörth was meant to be free from the rule of any of the surrounding states, but it was also immensely bad press for the empire to be seen actively invading the city on behalf of the complaints of the Catholic minority. Worse still, for Rudolf and his Catholic allies, the act of occupying the city awakened its Protestant inhabitants to the fact that they, as a religious body, had no counsel or office to appeal to themselves, since, because of their refusal to acknowledge the authority of the Empire's Supreme Court or Diet, they had been left constitutionally out in the cold. Finally, with the Protestants clearly chastened, and with rumours emerging from the city that a. Max's troops might be behaving badly, b. that the Catholics were never being persecuted in the first place, and c. that Max had no plans for leaving, a political deadlock was inevitable. When the Imperial Diet thus attempted to raise new taxes for what was meant to be the resumption of Rudolf's war against the Ottomans in 1608, the Protestant states almost in unison refused to vote the taxes through unless serious changes were made to the level of actual religious equality in the empire. The Catholic reps in the Diet replied with a scare tactic by proposing a bill of their own that would have reduced all religious rights of the Protestants 
to the state that they were in before the Peace of Augsburg had been signed in 1552. In other words, the Catholic states, backed by Habsburg agents, desperate to see the taxes levied, had just made a barely veiled threat, that if the Protestant states did not do as they were told in good time, the Diet would use its Catholic majority to pass legislation that removed the Protestants' religious rights as set down by the 1555 Peace of Augsburg. Geoffrey Parker sees this, as do many other historians, as the moment conflict between the two religious denominations was made inevitable, and the moment when the Protestants sought religious protection as a religious body of one, that was for once outside of the HRE's official radar of approval, and which went against the very authority of the Emperor himself. Quote, when the Emperor called for taxes to be levied to cover his expenditure on the Turkish war, the Protestants demanded in return religious changes beneficial for Protestantism and Calvinism in particular. In a misguided exercise in scare tactics, the Catholic princes responded with a motion calling for the restoration of all church land secularised since 1552, the end of the last religious war in Germany, and, after some futile manoeuvring, in April 1608 the majority of the Protestant representatives led by Frederick IV of the Palatine, walked out of the Diet. In May, Frederick persuaded many of his followers, both Lutheran and Calvinist, to overcome their differences and sign a new defensive alliance to last ten years, the Evangelical, or Protestant, Union, which pledged mutual support to its members in case of attack, with the Elector Palatine as its director. It soon included nine princes and seventeen imperial cities. End quote. In response to this act, Maximilian of Bavaria, the same Max who had occupied Donauwörth, called together the leading Catholic princes and prelates of South Germany, and before long had formed his own Catholic League, with Max as a director. Just like the Protestant Union it enjoyed much success, and soon 20 Catholic rulers had signed with the League. Both the PU and the CL required financing, and though Max was rich, he could not fund the Catholic League alone just like Freddy couldn't fund the Protestant Union by himself. Both sought international help, and this is where the bones of the upcoming war begin to set. While the Catholic League sought funding and acquired it from Philip III of Spain, of more importance to Freddy IV, and then his son Freddy V, was military alliances from the Union's Protestant neighbours, the Netherlands and England. In light of this, James I of England and Scotland would pledge his daughter Elizabeth to wed Freddy cementing their alliance, while Freddy V's uncle happened to be Maurice of Nassau, the reigning Prince of Orange in the Netherlands, and so the Dutch would sign an alliance with the Protestant Union in 1613. Even in retrospect, it sounds like a recipe for disaster. Two armed camps, financed and supported by different interested parties abroad, living and breathing, within what was meant to be the same empire, has all the ingredients for a full-blown civil war. And, at the heart of the empire was Rudolf, whose frequent absences and irrationality seemed to be aggravating the whole situation. Matthias, his younger brother, began to acquire more and more responsibilities as heir presumptive, and also began to be actually proclaimed emperor by Hungarian Protestants once his concessions actually granted them the freedoms they so badly wanted. When other states learned of these concessions, notably Bohemia, revolts broke out, demanding that Matthias give them the same treatment too. 
Matthias gave in to the pressure, and in 1609 the Protestant estates of Upper Austria were granted the religious privileges they sought. Watching these events unfolding with great concern was Ferdinand of Styria, Matthias's cousin and ruler of Inner Austria. Having surrounded himself with thoroughly Catholic and Counter-Reformation advisers within his court, so much so that his council became known as the Spanish Party, Ferdi is said to have remarked at Matthias's moves. The proceedings of Archduke Matthias are certainly strange to behold. All Catholics very much lament it, but the Protestants are jubilant. Indeed they were. Matthias's ability to simply compromise and recognise that delegating certain levels of equality to the split empire was the right course of action appeared to be actually repairing the woes of the Protestants. One could be forgiven for expecting this goodwill being shown by Matthias, though it was often shown only after much persuasion by the Protestants, to be returned in kind, and for the religious and political stability of the empire to return. Perhaps it may well have if not for a series of events that we'll examine in the next episode. With Matthias as a de facto emperor, Rudolf retreated to his confined quarters and died a broken man in 1612. Six months later, Matthias became the de jure emperor and began what he hoped would be the rule that repaired the empire's problems. I learned that Poland had been recreated and not created by the Versailles Treaty of 1919, that Poland itself made sense. How could a country, a language, a people just vanish so completely from the map of Europe? Because I could not answer this question at the time, I did not understand that Poland in fact had existed as one of the strongest, largest and most prosperous states in Europe before it was so cruelly extinguished in 1795. Of course, the story of Poland's decline goes hand in hand with that of Russia's rise, which goes some way into explaining why Poland ceased to exist after 1795. But to me, it seems like very little thought is in fact given in historical circles to the strength of Poland since its inception as a geopolitical force in the late 10th century. Just like the story of Sweden, Poland is one which many are not in fact aware of, because of its subsequent overshadowing in the face of the might of its neighbours. Unfortunately, though I may be teasing it here, we simply do not have time for a real background story on the history of Poland, and thus you'll have to be satisfied with the rolling out of a few key dates in the country's history. In 1370, with the death of its last pieced monarch, Poland's first real Poland's first royal dynasty, Poland began to war with its neighbours and the Teutonic Knights, who occupied what would become East Prussia, and who the Poles, ironically, had invited into the region in the north to protect and convert the inhabitants there from the Baltic. In the process of coming into being, the Poles had already had to deal with the Mongols in the mid-13th century, but in place of the Mongol threat came the rise of another regional power which may surprise you. As Mieczysław Biskupski in his book The History of Poland explains, quote, The picture was complicated by the meteoric rise to prominence of Lithuania. From its narrow confines along the Baltic, the Lithuanians, under a series of gifted soldiers, expanded rapidly from the 13th and 14th centuries, pushed the Mongols back, 
and brought much of eastern Slavic territory under their control. This resulted in the establishment of a large, rather ramshackle state, the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, on Poland's eastern border. End quote. The heiress of the Pius dynasty then married the Grand Duke of Lithuania, Jagiello, in 1385, cementing a dynastic line that would morph over the next two centuries until the union of Lublin in 1569 made the union not just dynastic, but also official and political too. Though scholars disagree as what the union meant for both Poland and Lithuania on cultural and nationalistic levels, the joining of the two countries did last almost 200 years based on dynastic links alone, a seriously significant length of time for two countries that size to be joined. The dynastic union enabled Poland-Lithuania to triumph over its neighbours, most notably the Teutonic Knights in the Battle of Grunwald in 1410. But it also meant the spread east of Christianity and its institutions towards the once pagan Lithuania. The Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, often referred to as Poland or the Commonwealth, enjoyed prosperity during the period 1385-1569, was plunged into chaos in 1572 with the death of the last Polish-Lithuanian monarch from the dynasty that had linked the two countries. The death of this monarch, from what was called the Jagiellonian dynasty, after Jagiello himself, might have suggested the end of the union between the two countries, had it not been for the Union of Lublin three years before that had cemented the existence of the two states as one. In truth, Poland had come to dominate its far larger neighbour, first spiritually with Christianity, but then administratively and technologically, to the extent that Poland and Polish nobles had a far greater say in the affairs of the Commonwealth, and had thus a far greater stake in seeing the whole enterprise remain intact. Biskupski examines this situation in Poland in 1572. Quote, By 1572, the last Jagiolian had died, and Poland again faced an era of profound transformation. The two centuries of Jagiolian rule had seen Poland rise to play a major role in the continent and bid fair repeatedly to a yet greater position when members of the House of Jagiello sat on the thrones of Hungary and Bohemia and the so-called Jagiellian system controlled much of Europe from the Baltic to the Adriatic. Even though the most gigantic of these visions proved temporary, what remained was vast enough, and by 1572 Poland was at the peak of its power and influence, with impressive achievements in culture and the arts to match its renown in military triumphs. However, with the extinction of the Jagiellonian dynasty, Poland took a bold step which again has become the subject of continuing debate. Poland reconceived itself in 1572 as an elective republic, a royal republic, in which the subsequent monarchs would be elected by a vote of the numerous Zlakta, the ruling class of Poland. Once chosen, the prospective monarch would have to sign a contract, the Pacta Convent, which would curtail his ruling prerogatives in advance and protect the rights and privileges of the gentry. The elected king, though certainly no figurehead, would have his power limited by various structures and restrictions, and he would be unable to designate his successor. His death would necessitate a new election. End quote. The new elective system hit a series of setbacks over the following years, before joining itself to Sweden's monarchy. Catherine Jagiellonica was the daughter of the last Jagiellonian monarch, 
and her marriage to King John III of Sweden in 1563 created a dynastic union which would, if it produced an heir, see the creation of a ridiculously huge state based out of marriage, the Polish-Swedish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. Okay, it wasn't really called that, but by the time John III triumphed over his crazy and hated half-brother Eric, long story, and emerged as king in 1569, the pair were set to dominate not just the Baltic, but also Eastern and East Central Europe collectively. This idea was given further support with the birth of a son, Sigismund, and his eventual reign of the two kingdoms as one dynastic unit for the brief tenure until he was deposed as King of Sweden by his uncle and John's brother Charles in 1599. The deposing of Sigismund ensured that the two crowns would remain separate, though Sigismund would continue to sit on the Polish throne and live to see the gradual surpassing of his kingdom by Sweden over the following years. The Polish monarchs would continue to press their claim to the Swedish throne for the next 70 years, until the so-called Swedish deluge of 1655-1660 almost caused the disintegration of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth from within. It leads to a fascinating period of rivalry between the two countries. As Sweden clings to North German territories, and Muscovy begins its gradual climb towards importance, both Poland and Sweden will beat lumps out of each other just long enough to realise their underestimation of their far eastern neighbour. Charles's deposing of Sigismund saw him crowned as Charles IX on the 22nd of March, 1604. By the end of his rule, Charles will have married and remarried, both to suitable ladies-in-waiting within the German principalities. Charles's involvement in North German affairs is a sign of things to come for Sweden, as the country would make its name and define its legacy on the bloody stage of the Thirty Years' War. However, it would not be Charles IX that would lead Sweden onto this stage. It would instead be his son, the most famous and celebrated of all of Sweden's kings, Gustavus Adolphus the Great. We will jump off from Gustavus's coronation and rule of Sweden next time, folks. We'll also cover Spain's 12-year truce offer with the Dutch, Henry IV's assassination, and much more over the years roughly 1610 to 1618. Until next time though, history friends, my name is Zach, and you've been listening to the When Diplomacy Fails special on the Thirty Years' War, episode 25.1, The Germans on the East. Thanks very much to Seamus and Andreas for their donations. Thanks! deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.